A lesser man would have felt it was his own dreams and ambitions that struck the reef, and the shuddering blow of it was his future splintering apart rather than the beams of our ship. And I, for one, believed we were well and truly fucked, knew it as a certainty that many of us would be dead before daybreak. Our great captain showed not a moment of doubt that he would save us, as if the strength of his determination alone would hold the ship together, as if he had seen how it would be written. And he would, through his own strength and determination, hold us afloat to limp to shore, where our injured vessel could be hauled up upon the bank to be repaired. And there are some nights when the moon is bright across the reefs and the strong southerly winds swirl together, my memories and my longings, that I almost believe that is exactly how things played out. For he didn't save us, did he? Waterby, late at night. The elders are feverishly talking, Yukumindilbi, at the fire. As I have not yet been initiated, the Wupur, Imperial Pied Pigeon, having passed only 11 times through the land, I am not permitted to take part of the conversation. It is only for the men. But this isn't going to deter me. I long to know what they are saying and crane my head forward in the darkness to hear as much as I can. As the talk around the fire continues, I can only make out parts of the words, and admittedly, yet, the hairs on my skin stood up on end from what I hear. Unknown spirits have been forming along the coast. Could this be Wuchi, the most terrifying of all spirits, who may have come for members of our tribe? Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis and today we're joined by Craig Cormick and Harold Ludwig talking about their new book, On a Barbarous Coast, which tells an alternate story of how Australia was discovered by Captain Cook and the crew of the Endeavour in 1770. After the Endeavour becomes shipwrecked off the coasts of far north Australia, a band of fractured survivors try to make sense of the strange new land and its unknown creatures, as well as the area's original inhabitants. Meanwhile, the Yugu Yimadir people watch the mysterious white beings, unable to decide if they are ancestor spirits or hostile invaders. One young man, Gargil, is determined to find out exactly who they are. Craig and Harold, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Glad to be here. So the book takes its title and epigraph from a passage of the journal of Sidney Parkinson, who was a botanical artist on the board of the Endeavour, where he muses on what might have happened if they became shipwrecked on the coast of Australia. Was it that direct passage that inspired the concept of this book? It wasn't so much that direct passage, but when I found that passage, it captured the sense of fear that the Europeans on board the Endeavour had of, of what was going to happen. In if, they, if they did get wrecked ashore. And ironically enough, Sidney Parkinson did a complete 180 degrees because he actually got to spend a lot of time with the people and recorded a lot of their language and probably came to some better understanding of them, of it not being a barbarous coast at all, but, but having people they were actually able to make some communication with. Hmm. And how did you two come to write this book together? 
it started off. I, I, I've been a Cook tragic for a long time, and I've written a lot of short stories with Captain Cook in them. And I was keen to write a, a book that reassessed Captain Cook because, as as we move in towards you know twenty twenty, it's it's apparent that our attitudes as a nation to Cook are very complex. Mm. We either lionise him, demonise him, and so I thought there's got to be a lot more to tell than that. And I'd been up in Cooktown, and I thought, this is great. No one knows the Cooktown story. Why, why is that? That's, that's amazing because everybody knows Botany Bay, and Cook only spent eight days in Botany Bay, but he spent 48 days up in Cooktown and had some real, real meaningful um, interactions with Indigenous people there, but no one knows the story. So first I thought I'd just tell the, the Cook story, but I want to tell it in a different way because I was thinking, how might our history play out had just one single thing been different. And that single thing was when the Endeavour struck the reef up in the Great Barrier Reef, and a lot of people know that the Endeavour hit the reef and they managed to save it and limped ashore and fix the ship. What had happened if they weren't able to fix the ship? What would happen then if the crew, half of them had died and in a shipwreck had been stormy night and they'd come ashore and, and there they were with, with really no weapons, no food, no none of the technology of the time they had that gave them the superiority of power, what would happen if they had nothing and Indigenous people had all the superiority? How would, they, how would that play out? And that was that, that what-if question that drove the whole, the whole idea. Then when I went up to Cooktown, I met with lots of different Indigenous people and talked to them about my idea and talked to them about the rest of it. You know, some, some of them shook their head and said, what are you talking about? That's a crazy idea. And some of them, like Harold, he sort of got it. And he said, yeah, 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 this is how it would have played out. And this is when they would have speared them. This is when they wouldn't have. And uh, over time, me and, me and Harold started flashing the idea out. And um, it, we just hit it off really well. Hmm. So, Harold, what was it that drew you to the, the idea of this book that Craig brought to you? Well, it's um, through history and the uh, records, um, from day dot, you know, they call their people savages and uh, mm. Indians and things like, like that. But no one ever spoke about the humanity of our people, how we how we um, cared for people other than ourselves. I mean, you go back to the days of um, uh, Palatia. He lived 20-odd years with the indigenous people up on Lockhart River. You had Mary, a lady from Innisfail, white woman that lived with Aboriginal people for a year before she's seen another white man. So I thought, this is a great idea. This book really, really en encapsulates um, the humanity of the Indigenous people that people never talk about. Mm. And we can um, put that into words and show people that, yes, our people did have empathy. Our people did um, have humanity. And so, you know, it was a perfect, perfect story to tell. It's about the reconciliation as well, because when Cook arrived here and on the 19th of uh, July, when he um, took a shot of our people, the fight over the turtles, it was the little old man called Yapariko who initiated the reconciliation. So, you know, the cultural governance of this of this area is also needs to be told and so i think it's a very it was a very very right time for me to get my story across as well and so what role did each of you play in the writing of the book was it quite a shared burden or did each of you sort of focus on different areas 
So, so I guess for a, a, at a, a simple level, it's I tell the white fella story and Harold tells the black fella story. But we actually found as we started writing our own parts, we were informed by the other person's writing and the other person's ideas. Hmm. So, so there's a bit, there's some, you know, a lot of Harold's thinking's in mine. I guess some of my thinking might be in Harold's as well. So it's not like completely disparate narratives because as the book goes on, the two get closer and closer and closer together until the, the white fellow survivors are actually living with the indigenous people. That's correct. It, it flows in and out of each uh, story. So, you know, it's a good meshing of um, our stories of um, the Blackfellow and the Whitefellow story. Yeah, so that was one of the purposes of the book, that we really wanted to find a way to bring the two narratives together in a way that could bring the two cultures together. Hmm. And so there, there's the, the big key question in the book, what if, you know, what if a, some of the shipwreck survivors had lived with Indigenous people that long and they'd moved together towards more unity? than we've seen across most of our history, how differently our whole history might have been then. Harold, if I'm not mistaken, this is your first published book. What was the experience of writing it like for you? Well, um, I'm not so good at grammar, <laughs> but I learned a lot about grammar when I started writing it, and I, the pause and, you know, and uh, different lines. And, and um, it was a learning curve for me because I didn't have much education. I was a pretty much a rat bag, <laughs> so I didn't go to school much. Uh, I'd rather be out hunting, and um, it's taught me respect for other authors as well. It's the devotion to what you want to do, and you've got to be self-motivated to do it, mm. and so it taught me a lot of things just being part of this book. Yeah, and Harold's voice is very genuine. I, I really like that because Harold, Harold's voice comes from his, you know, his emotions and what he feels and so on. And we particularly wanted to include a lot of language, the Google Imada language in the book. And that excerpt Harold read, you'll see that he used a lot of Indigenous words in that. So it's also a way of preserving and record-keeping for the Indigenous language. It was important for the essence of what Captain Cook done when he got here. Hmm. Um, not him, but mainly uh, Joseph Banks and Sidney Parkinson. They recorded 132 words. And when we look at the word list today, those words, we can identify what they were saying, even though they spelt it uh, phonetically. Mm. So it's, it's a very important that the, the nation understands that the very people that Cook met in 1770 and the language that was recorded is still here today. Although the book, as we said, is a fictional alternate account of the discovery of Australia, it does use real figures from the endeavour, including the aforementioned Sidney Parkinson and Joseph Banks, as well as Cook himself, and even our narrator, James Magra. How did you go about developing their characters and the decisions they make in the novel? So while the, while the book's fiction, it's based as close to fact as we could get it. So everybody in the book's an actual person. I went to a lot of research, try and hunt down as much as we could about their known characters. Um, we looked at a lot of examples of other shipwreck survivors in Australia to model it on, so how would it have played out. Um, the, the, the key voice is narrated by James Joseph Magra, also known as Matra, which Matraville and Sydney's named after. And he, he was a bit of a, an odd bod, and I was hunting around to find the right narrative voice, and he stuck because he was a midshipman. Um, his father was born in um, Corsica, he went to Ireland and went to America, so he was American-born himself, and he was not a big fan of Cook. He'd been disciplined by Cook on board the ship previously, 
Um, he was critical of some of Cook's decisions. And I thought, that's what I need. I need a critical voice who doesn't fit in, someone who doesn't belong to the English hierarchy, someone who's a bit of an outsider already. And that gives us the, the perspective to show, um, tell the whole story from a different point of view. Hmm. And there's quite an interesting dynamic between the surviving crew of the Endeavour and Magra uh, and Captain Cook, who becomes quite incapacitated for much of the novel. Why did you choose to have Captain Cook take somewhat of a back seat in the novel's dynamics? Well, Cook has a problem. He overwhelms the book. He can overwhelm every story as part of it. So we needed him there, but not to overwhelm it. So Cook was comatose after the wreck. He gets hit by falling spars and he's largely incapacitated. So to, to an extent, Cook becomes a symbol or a figure, as he has in, in you know, the modern way of looking at Cook. But everything circles around him. It's all about how do we keep Cook alive? How do we get the captain alive? If only the captain would wake up, he'd solve his problem because the crew with no figure of authority and I've, we've killed off all the senior officers, they start going a bit Lord of the Fliesy. You know, the, the Marines start splintering from the sailors, start splintering from the scientists, and there's no one in authority. And so things start breaking down very quickly amongst the, uh, the white survivors. And as you've said, uh, there's a sort of... Uh idolisation of Cook and the narrative of Australia's discovery. I guess, were you at all worried about causing a potential backlash with how the book handles these subjects and kind of twists them around? We've reached a point where we need a more nuanced picture of Cook. Yeah. And you know, there, there are quite a few books coming out at the moment that, that display Cook either as the, the, the villain or as the, the hero. And I think we had to do something broader. We had to look at the... Because, yeah, Cook was a victim of his times as much as everybody was of their times. Um, so I, I have a very different picture of Cook, I think, than, than many authors do. Um, I thought he was more benevolent than he's often made out, but he was operating in a time when what was benevolence was pretty tough yakker anyway. Um, so putting Cook, not making the book necessarily about Cook is, is a way of getting around that as well. Yeah. The history of Cook, everything has come from the the ship to shore sort of uh, journals, and um, there's never been our representation of what was written in the journals and decoding what was written uh, about you know the turtles, even even the fish that Banks gave to uh, one of the indigenous people here at um, Endeavour River. Um, so I think that it was time now for for the, our people, the first peoples of this country, to add, we are the bookend of that story, the journals, because everything that was written from uh, English point of view had no substance until we add what is being written about. The simple things of, you know, the fires they seen around here, um, the blood not being spilt here on Wayamburg, so I thought, you know, with this book, we can start adding the flavour to that history in a way that people, they just want to learn more about it from our point of view as well. Uh, because all we hear about is Cook, um, but now we can hear about all the other groups along the coast that Cook went past. I, I think that it could have been bad. You know, he had guns, he had everything like that. And but he showed the benevolence, like um, Craig said. I, I think it's a great story that the nation should know about in its entirety. 
And as we said, we're told the story of the, the Gugu Yimidir perspective through Gargil. Um, what was the thinking in developing his character? Well, we, I think we, what we needed is that bridge between both different cultures. Tapaya's servant boy was around the same age. So these, this is the conduit that sort of brought them together, the chance meeting of Gargil and um, Tapaya's um, young servant. So we should throw in there a bit of, bit of background that, that Cook had oh, sorry. with him. Yeah, Cook had with him a Tahitian um, holy man, Tupaya, and his young boy, um, Taheta. And we, we decided, me and Harold, in talking, that the first bridge had to come from that point that was neither the full Indigenous society nor the full European side. So we've got the young boys making that first meet. Because the boys look beyond. You know, the boys don't belong necessarily to the fully integrated society on both sides, and they can be the first ones that make that link. And it's, it's a good it's good link because we know ourselves that we don't know difference between colour, religion or whatever when, we, when we're young people. We, it's, it's a taught or learned thing. And so having these two little young characters, they don't see the difference, but they're curious like children are. And so, you know, that sort of brings it together. And Harold, you're a, um, a Yugu Yimidir man yourself, and you work as a guide and a cultural historian in Cooktown. How did you weave your knowledge uh, through your culture and your work into the book? Growing up, I didn't have much of a childhood because I, I used to hang around all the old fellas. And I used to listen to their stories and, you know, it's speaking in Kuku Yimidir. It, it sort of stuck with me. So 90%, I'd, I'd say 90% of my stuff, what I put in there um, but the, from the Indigenous point of view, is, is 100, uh, 90% true. I mean, had to traverse the lands, the, the, the spirits. Um, even when we've seen uh, our people seeing Captain Cooking coming into um, the Endeavour River, our people thought they were uh, Milkandur and Galka Wunkul, and they were two, these two were uh, ancestors of ours that we believe were coming back from the East. So, you know, I had an opportunity to, um, you know, put into this uh, story a lot of the truth of our people right down to the cultural governance and um, sacred areas of significance. Where Captain Cook... Um, um, Korean, uh, the endeavor, it's, it's neutral land. It was more or less like the UN because all clan groups could come here to negotiate and, um, you know, instead of going to full scale war, they could come here and, um, discuss the issue instead of, you know, bloodshed. But on this certain area here in Cooktown, no blood was to be intentionally spilt. And when Captain Cook shot the, uh, one of our Indigenous people, this is where the, the cultural governance kicked in and the little old man they refer to, whose name is Yapariko, actually initiates um, what was bestowed on him as a leader and an elder to stop further bloodshed. And that's how this reconciliation that happened in 1770 um, came about. And this is one of the greatest stories in Australia. And the reconciliation rocks is something we're trying to um, 
get um, state heritage and national heritage over because it was this reconciliation was before time, before colonisation, and was a good story that uh, Australia needs. Hmm. Well, things could have gone very hairy because you had the Indigenous people getting very cranky that Cook had taken so many turtles from the ocean, um, overfishing the resource. Um, then it, it led to a bit of conflict, and they, they, you know, one side had spears, one side had muskets, and it looked like it was going to get pretty nasty until that little old man came out with a broken spear and led to reconciliation, got them all to sit down in peace together. And, you know, had that not happened, it could have could have gone uh, ugly as it had in New Zealand, as it had in many other places Cook visited. And uh, I think uh, how Cook summarised uh, the Indigenous people here at um, uh, Cooktown as well, you know, he said, you know, they live in a fine climate they, and um, they have no want for material things. They are far more happier than us Europeans. So, you know, it goes to show that, you know, um, he sort of understood uh, us in a way um, that we didn't want anything because we threw away all the beads and nails they tried to give us. But when they gave us a fish, our people were overjoyed because that fish represented our practical use as food, you know. And so, you know, it's... um. I think it's it's a great story that um, the curriculum really misses in Australia as well. You mentioned earlier that you took inspiration of people who were shipwrecked or otherwise lived with Indigenous Australians for a period of time. Uh, what were some of these stories and how did you incorporate those into the book? Yeah, so we looked at a lot of the, the survivors, particularly those in Queensland, like James Davis, James Morrill, um, Barbara Thompson and Narcissus Pelletier, which... Um, Harold's referenced earlier. And, but, yeah, they had Indigenous names. James Davis was known by the people who lived with as Durumboy. James Morrill was known as Karkin Jim Wombil Mooney. Barbara Thompson was known as Guion. And Narcissus Pelletier was known as Anko. Uh, Narcissus Pelletier lived north of um, Cooktown um, for almost 20 years, I think it was. And when he was discovered by Europeans, he didn't want to go. Um, he wanted to stay there. He, he didn't want to be taken away, and they had to almost forcibly kidnap him to get him away. Mm. Um, so looking at those stories and reading those narratives gave us a lot of insight into how this would have played out. I know for the uh, anniversary of Cook's Landing, they, the government wanted to build a, a replica of the Endeavour and sail it up and down the Australian coast, and there was a lot of controversy around that plan. I was curious what you two thought of that. I've, I've actually crewed on that. So the, the, the Endeavour replica was built some time ago, and so it's parked outside <coughs> the National Maritime Museum in Sydney. Hmm. And in doing research, I spent five days as a crew member on the Endeavour, and I got to sleep in the hammock and climb up the rigging and be seasick off the, the top of the rigging like any good sailor. The way the government did that was a bit ham-fisted, I think, um, because it could have been done as a symbol of reconciliation along the coast rather than trying to make it a round Australia visit, a rah, rah, rah yeah. um, for for Captain Cook and what we've done on us, uh, you know, white settlers. I think they missed the, missed the boat, if I can use that analogy, on the way that could have been something very different. When we think about Cook, we think about all the massacres and that came later on because of the claiming of this country. And I, I think that um, I, th I think we should separate 1788 from 1770. 1770 was a different time, and Cook came from humble beginnings. He was 
broke as a church mouse. He couldn't afford his, uh, his father couldn't afford his education. So mm. his father's employer paid for his education. He knew what it was to be humble. He had a different view than other explorers that just come in willy-nilly like the Dutch up on the West Coast. They just shot out all the people in Arakun and things like that on the way up. So, you know, um, I, I think this is a story Australia needs to know. And the sooner we get that in our uh, curriculum, the better. Just to cap everything up, I was curious what you would like readers to take away from the book overall. Um, so I want readers to to understand both the fragility of Cook's survival um, on the along the Great Barrier Reef, how close it could have been to having a different outcome in history, and had we had that outcome of history, and had we had closer interaction living between European survivors and Indigenous people, what a very different outcome our history would have been. So the way we played out is the the few survivors left at the end understand the Indigenous people really well, and they understand the Europeans. And so imagine what would happen if the next European settlers, arrivers had arrived, and they were met with somebody who spoke English and understood them and could negotiate outcomes. So we wanted to have these these disparate um, narratives and disparate ways of thinking, which we still have today, too disparate between the white Australia and black Australia, if they'd found ways to to merge and mingle into a more unified common voice together. And can we still achieve that in modern Australia? Right. Yeah, I'm 100% behind you on what you said. Um, so what I'll say is that, you know, going beyond the, beyond the characters and actually immersing yourself in the story where we can come together in difficult times like we are now, you know, we can come together. We, the story of respecting each other and understanding each other goes a long way for us as a nation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Craig and Harold, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Max. Thank you. Thank you.